All right. Um, good afternoon. Uh, you're all very welcome to today's seminar as part of our uh, the Transitional Justice Institute's WPS at 20 seminar series. Uh, my name is Catherine O'Rourke and I'm uh, TJI director and I've been convening this seminar series all year. Um, it's, it's auspicious that we're having um, a seminar today, indeed the week of the 20th anniversary um, of Resolution 1325, um, an agenda setting and transformative resolution in, in many respects. Um, today's seminar um, is um, one in a series that we've been running all year and we've been I would encourage you uh, for those of you interested in the broader theme please do consult our resources through the university website ulster.ac.uk forward slash WPS 20 where you'll be able to access recordings uh, and videos of, of all of the seminars and we've looked at a pretty diverse set of themes this year we've looked at questions of um, masculinities, um, sexual and gender minorities, peace agreements, gender-based violence, um, peace mediation. Uh, we had a roundtable um, on the resolutions local relevance in, in Belfast and Northern Ireland. And um, today we're delighted to welcome um, a long-term friend uh, and collaborator with the Transitional Justice Institute, uh, Professor Diane Marie Amon um, from the University of Georgia. Um, we're particularly pleased to be able to address a topic that, I mean, in my view, really has been quite under address this year in terms of the, the series of kind of activities around um, commemorating Resolution 1325 and in attempting to sort of think about uh, new challenges and issues in the agenda moving forward. Um, the question of children has been uh, really, I think, under address, largely secondary um, and silent in, in much of these discussions. So I'm, I am really pleased that the, the TJI has been able to provide a forum to bring one of the, the world's foremost experts on the theme um, to, uh, to this question. Um, Diane brings um, enormous scholarly expertise. Uh, she's a chair in international law at the University of Georgia. Um, she's also co-director co of their international law center. Um, but also um, an extraordinary record of practice. Uh, she is, since, since 2012, she's been special advisor on children um, to the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court um, and brings an important perspective um, from there as well, because one of the issues we certainly look to in terms of the WPS agenda is the extent to which it is impacting the protection and promotion of children's rights through other regimes of international law um, outside of the Security Council, but cognate to it. Um, so there's really nobody better placed uh, to bring that perspective than today, than uh, our speaker today. Um, so Diana, a warm thank you from your, your friends here at the TJI. It's a delight to be able to, to give us a talk. Um, you were, of course, for many years on our external advisory panel, and we are indebted to you for your inputs um, in that regard. Um, the format for today is that Diane will speak for about sort of 40 minutes, um, and we'll then move to Q&A. Um, Q&A, we'll, it's up to you if you'd like to, you can contribute um, verbally in the Q&A or indeed feel free to use the drop box, the chat box in the um, in the system and we'll monitor that through the talk as well. So if something pops up um, as Diane is speaking, feel free to, to, to enter that in there. Um, um, so with that, Diane, um, a warm welcome and thanks and I'm um, looking forward to, to hearing your contribution today. Thank you so much, Catherine, and thanks to everyone for uh, uh, coming in for some of you it's lunchtime for some of us it is just first light uh here in uh the eastern part of the united states so i'm delighted that i'm able to speak and that you're you're here to meet with us it is as catherine said for me it's a special um 
honored to be speaking at TAJI. I've had a long relationship with it. Um, and I don't know if Catherine knows this, but my husband is an alumnus of McGee College at the University of Ulster. So uh, we have a, a very long-standing relationship with this university in my family. Um, as Catherine said, I, I do hold a position with an international organization. I therefore want to make clear that I am speaking today exclusively in my personal capacity and not on behalf of any uh, institution with which I might be affiliated. Um, and in addition to thanking TJI, I would very much like to thank four uh, student researchers at the University of Georgia who uh, helped me over the summer think through and research some of the issues that we'll be talking about in this seminar. They are Zoe Ferguson, Courtney Hogan, Charles Wells, and Michael Ramirez. So thanks very much to you. What I'm going to try to do here is offer, um, if you will, a, a think piece on the issue of children and the women, peace, and security agenda. I am not going to give you a doctrinal deep drive into these issues, uh, but really try to pull back a little bit from um, the fine print of, of a lot of the literature that it's been spawned in the last 20 years and think about um, <clears throat> where children fit in, if at all, and if they do not fit in sufficiently, how might, me, how might we imagine uh, a, a regime or, or a space in which the, the issues of children can be addressed more fully. Um, and so with that, I think the place for me to start is really, I have to get used to this maneuvering. Um, I hope that here uh, on the right, you can all see uh, a photograph of the first page of resolution 1325. For reasons unclear to me, um, what I am seeing is a gray uh, rectangle, but Catherine assures me that you can see the text, and that's a good thing. Uh, resolution 1325 is the resolution that we're commemorating this week. Its 20th anniversary is on Saturday. Um, and it really, in many ways, as, as has been clear throughout the TJI series, is a landmark in the recognition of states, particularly the Security Council, on the role of women in um, the area that is of most uh, concern to the Security Council, that is international peace and security. And so what I'd like to do is to start by, by thinking a little bit about what that resolution says. It applies, first of all, uh, in a rather limited space. It applies by its terms during and after armed conflicts. And that is a, a concept that I, I will be returning to a number of times in this discussion. Because it is turning on the concept of armed conflict during and after, if you parse it, you see that its discussion of 
of the subjects and objects of the, the resolution are almost always, if not always, in the context of either civilians and then there's one reference to ex-combatants. This is a protection of civilians document. When we say civilian, we are automatically thinking of some sort of conflict situation. As you might expect in what is a relatively short resolution, 18 paragraphs, the word women appears quite a bit. In fact, it appears 18 or 28 times in 18 paragraphs. How are the women treated? Honestly, to, the, to a large extent, they are discussed as objects of international law, as objects of the resolution. They are referred to as people affected, targeted, people in need, people in need of protection. There is discussion of gender perspective, adding a gender perspective when thinking about how to deal with people in need, gender sensitivity. And then um, as to what needs they may have, there is a strong uh, or frequent, if you will, mention of sexual and other violence. On occasion, in 1325, women are recognized as subjects and given um, some, some authority, if you will, as subjects. There is a recognition that women are involved in preventing, resolving uh, disputes, that they are able to and should be able to participate in decisions, and that they should be made representatives in the kind of processes at issue, both locally and as envoys of the United Nations. This work of participation, um, for those of you who have followed the series, has been extremely important. Um, and Christine Bell and Catherine, I believe, are very much involved and have been in the past in the aspect of women and peace negotiations. What has been the result of the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda? Well, there have been many, and it's not my role to talk about them in total. But um, a good snapshot, if you will, comes from a, a timeline that you can find. You notice in green, I have included the, the URLs for the pictures and other sources that I have in this seminar. Um, UN Women right now has up a 20-year timeline of achievements in women, peace, and security. And they portray women much in the way that you see in this photo, women as peace negotiators, as well as peacekeepers. And that's reflected in these pictures. Women as judges, they have some pictures, for instance, the, the panel of the Sierra Leone Special Court uh, that was an all-woman panel, women as activists. And in those activist roles, women involved in agitation uh, against abduction of girls. You may remember the, the Chibok uh, girls who were abducted in Nigeria a few years ago, women agitating against rape, women agitating against arms trafficking, um, specifically with regard to the adoption of the Arms Trade Treaty, um, leading a revolution in Sudan, and securing reparations for harm. So a lot of active roles for women depicted in that agenda. Now, those of you who deal in WPS could probably spend the entire seminar just on this slide, because I know there's a lot of critique um, and questioning and discussion about these roles 
and and the way in which 1325 has advanced or perhaps even sometimes impeded these roles. But that's not my agenda. My goal is to think about <clears throat> 1323 um, in relation not specifically to women, but rather to children. At first blush, you may say, well, why are you even doing that? Well, the reason is that 1325 itself contains references to women, or excuse me, to children. It has uh, 14 references to women and girls. So almost half the time that it's talking about women, it is adding and girls, and a couple of times and children. Additionally, in its Security Council speak recitation of prior documents, uh, relevant institutions, you can see that in a handful of times it talks about resolutions, uh, the leading treaty on children, and also one of the leading UN entities on children, UNICEF. That said, this is not a child rights instrument. The only references to girls or children occur with them attached, almost glued together to the word women. There are no standalone references to children, no standalone references to girls, absolutely no standalone references to boys, and even more so given that we're talking about the year 2000, my guess not even an intent or a recognition of the um, needs, existence, uh, uh, lives, if you will, of non-binary children. And so in that respect, um, we see that Resolution 1325 itself uh, has this curious reference to children, specifically to girl children, but one that doesn't seem to be very much um, thought through. I think it's fair to say that <clears throat> children are treated almost in this resolution almost as if they're just adjuncts of women. More so, if you look at the times when they are mentioned, you see that they are almost always thought of as objects of international law. They are the ones who are affected, targeted, the special needs of children is a constant theme whenever they are mentioned. Um, there are specific references to the kinds of things that harm them, uh, landmines, armed groups, HIV AIDS, uh, peacekeepers, sadly. There's a clear focus in this 2000 resolution to what were then the recent and unfortunate continuing allegations of um, predatory sexual behavior by UN peacekeepers um, against indigenous populations. There are refugees, internally displaced persons, etc. They too should be thought of through a gender perspective and thought of in terms of sexual and other violence. I'm sorry, my throat is clogging up here. In other words, I think it's fair to say that even though they mention children, this document is by no means a whole child sensitive document. It's not whole child sensitive in, in the fact that it seems to focus on children as 
subset of the category gender, if you will, category female. Um, and it's not whole child sensitive in that it's children's sexual experiences or victim experiences that seem to be um, central in the minds of the drafters of 1325. Compared to the discussion of women, they are referred to um, as subjects almost not at all. There are a few references to rights of women and girls, but it almost appears as a throwaway line. There's no elaboration of what rights the drafters have in mind. And then there's one reference to women and girls in the context of participation in electoral systems. It's not an operative paragraph, and it's rather confusing given that very few girls have access to the to electoral systems pretty much in any country. Um, what's more, the resolution in a couple of places explicitly excludes children from participation. And I've given you two of them. If you can see this, it says recognizing that the impact of women, uh, armed conflict has an impact on women, um, and there's a need uh, for full participation in the peace processes, comma, what are we going to tell the states to do because of that? We're going to tell the states to have women participate. So there's a reference to the problem experienced by women and girls, but an exclusion from girls in participation. And that's repeated again on page three. It is almost as if, oops, what we're saying here is that mother knows best. And in the context of child rights, that is, that is not just a slogan, because as you may know, one of the buzz terms of child rights is best interests of the child. It is a term that anyone who works very long in child rights will recognize is often misused. It is often used in a paternalistic, or in this context, a maternalistic term. Mother knows best what is in the best interests of the child. The child should not do this. It's not good for them. It is often a one-directional concept, but those who work in child rights know that that is um, only half the equation of what best interest means. And that's something I want to come back to. So let's leave with sort of the popular colloquial understanding of how that applies. And we'll come back to the, the, the richer law-based understanding of it in a little bit. Why does all this matter? Does it matter at all that the drafters of 1325 uh, talked about women and girls, excluded half the population of children, um, seemed to think of them as adjuncts of, of women? Uh, it is, after all, a resolution about women. Is it such a bad thing that they throw in children for good measure without really thinking through issues about children. And, and if I can pause here, I should say that the skimming of the literature I've done of websites talking about what we should think of as achievements of 1325 in the last 20 years suggest that 
programmatically, children have also not been the focus of this agenda. Even though they're mentioned in the resolution, you don't see programs being put forth on behalf of children because of the WPS agenda. So the question is, does it matter? Why should it matter? And the answers that I would like to give are yes and three different reasons. One of the reasons it matters is because nothing's changed. One of the reasons it matters is because times have changed. And the last reason it matters is because children demand, children want, children demand better. Nothing has changed. All of these are um, snapshots, if you will, of news stories that are in play this very month. We see uh, from a Philippine uh, paper, the question, sort of almost the plaintiff cry, will child soldier recruitment never end? Um, and the picture, if I gave it all to you, is a little boy touching his father's rifle as his father inducts him into the armed group. Um, I am not at all fond of showing children's faces um, and children's identities, recognizing the consent issues at play. And so I have purposely cropped any of these pictures not to do that, but you can see they are children. Um, we see uh, to the right of that, uh, protests by Syrian refugees in Lebanon. We want out, get us out of Lebanon, we can't go back. Um, UN Disarmament Week is a reference to a boy holding uh, ammunition. In the Azerbaijan-Armenia border area, we now have a, a live armed conflict and the beginning of a refugee population and Save the Children is telling us about that. Um, Henrietta Four is the head of UNICEF who was talking about just this last week, uh, two very brutal attacks, destructive attacks on schools in both Afghanistan and Cameroon. And then at the, the lower left corner, um, the, the, I wanted to say tragedy, but it's a, it's a state-created tragedy of the separation of children at the southern border between the United States and Mexico. In an effective child rights system, a system that effectively was dealing with issues of children in armed conflict, none of these things should occur. And yet we have them as truly daily news headlines. We have that notwithstanding that in the 20 years since the WPS agenda was put forward, there have been multiple initiatives dealing with children in armed conflict. There is, in fact, a children in armed conflict agenda in the UN Security Council alongside the WPS agenda. There had already been a couple of resolutions about children in armed conflict even before the WPS resolution. Five years after the WPS resolution, um, they mature, if you will, into an actual Security Council agenda. There's a working group in the Security Council uh, dealing only with children in armed conflict issues. There has been identified the six grave violations that children are said to suffer in armed conflict. 
they it is not by any means an exhaustive list um other other uh harms that children suffer including detention is a huge one in armed conflict um torture and others are excluded but these are the six that the security council could agree on in addition to naming them the security council through the special representative on this issue has um, set up a reporting mechanism to identify both state armies and armed groups that are believed to violate these and to name them in reports. Um, and that is an ongoing uh, initiative that I'm happy to talk about in Q&A. In 2015, the Security Council adopted a resolution called Youth Peace and Security, which very clearly tracks the WPS agenda. It, so much sounds like WPS that the very fact that it exists ought to negate my argument altogether, except that the resolution itself identifies youths as 18 to 29. A pretty odd definition. I would not, if someone had said, what is a youth? That is not the number range that I would um, have used, I would have gone much lower into the teenage years. Um, the standard definition of child is anyone under 18. And so the Security Council has effectively taken children, as I am defining them, out of this initiative. And so that is interesting, but not helpful for the problem that I'm identifying. Other international entities, other NGOs have put forward all kinds of other important initiatives, the Safe Schools Declaration, uh, the Vancouver Principles put forward by Romeo Dallaire dealing with peacekeepers. Save the Children has an ongoing children non-conflict issue right now. Gordon Brown is the special envoy for education has put forward one as well. You notice here that I have et cetera. There is, as Catherine mentioned, an institution with which I am affiliated and which I have proudly served for eight years now that has also put forward a children in armed conflict uh, agenda, if you will. Um, I had hoped and intended when we first talked about my doing this seminar to tell you about that initiative. Um, as some of you may know, I am a plaintiff in a federal lawsuit uh, that alleges that um, my First Amendment ability to talk about the International Criminal Court, to advise the International Criminal Court in any way, has been chilled and indeed frozen by the sanctions that the President of the United States has imposed. Um, I am directly at risk of those sanctions. And so the best I can do is put an ETC here and say that I hope that you will read elsewhere to find more about that initiative because I am literally not permitted at this moment to talk about it. The last thing that I'd like to mention in line with initiatives are the optional protocols to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. There's one dealing with armed conflict, one dealing with sexual exploitation, and one dealing with uh, communications. All of these, for various reasons, 
are important. That said, all of these also have their own limitations vis-a-vis um, -vis the issues that, that are of concern to us today. One of the key limitations is that limitation to armed conflict. In um, 1325, the context is during and after armed conflict. In the 2250 resolution on youth peace and security, there are overt mentions of terrorism, which expands it somewhat. But anything that doesn't fit within those two simply is outside the scope. In international criminal law, as many of you know, the context is somewhat broader. The, the issues above are repeated in um, those aspects of international criminal law that deal only with armed conflict, specifically war crimes and serious violations of the laws of war. But crimes against humanity is much broader, including all widespread and systematic attacks against a civilian population. And then genocide, we say even peacetime, although that's perverse because any context in which genocide is occurring really does not deserve the label of peacetime. So a bit of broadening, but still not the full scope of day-to-day -day existence. Human rights law does cover all times and all places, except that there are questions about the extent to which it applies in the two circumstances above. Many countries in the world, many uh, international judicial institutions maintain that human rights law applies everywhere and at all times. But there are powerful states, including the United States and others, that resist that interpretation. And even um, in judicial institutions that hold that it applies, there is a recognition that sometimes IHL displaces it, or at least has the first place in considering what the legal regime is. And so we aren't quite certain how and when human rights law applies. Beyond that, I personally have an abiding concern with the way that human rights plays out day to day. It very much comes to us, it very much is practiced as a post hoc practice. We think about human rights when they are violated, and then we try to do something about it. We all know that what is done is um, selective, random, partial, incomplete. Even if one person whose human rights have been violated receives full consideration and full redress, there is no guarantee that that example will apply um, in any way to give uh, hearings or redress to others who are suffering from human rights violations. There is certainly no guarantee that the violator of human rights will um, do anything to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And so I'm not saying that human rights is bad, I'm just saying that it is not enough and that uh, the energy that is devoted to redress, as important as it is, 
does not often easily translate into prevention ex ante. The best human right is the one that is never violated. And yet we find over and over again the structural barriers to um, creating a, a human context, a social context, in which those violations do not occur. And so those are limitations that I see on the agenda as it stands. So that's what hasn't changed. Much of that could have been said 20 years ago. At the same time, one of the limitations I think, or one of the problems that I identify with the mention, but not full consideration, not full uh, integration, if you will, of children into the WPS agenda, is that even though nothing's changed, in many ways, everything has changed. What do I mean by that? Security has changed. What we understand security to be in 2020 is different than what I suspect the, the drafters thought it meant in 20, 2000, 2000. And they probably thought they were being quite advanced. For the Security Council in the year 2000 to be talking about things like women in peace and security was seen as revolutionary. Because for so many years, the council had been about armed conflict, uh, boots on the ground, um, responses to wars. And we know with the breakdown of what, what was then called the Cold War, um, there became in the 90s a, a, a fountainhead of ideas and applications trying to think more broadly about security. As we see from 1325, they didn't really drift too far away from the armed conflict space. So there was always, at least in the margins of discussions of security, a visualization of guns and weapons and military. I think 20 years on, there is a greater understanding and appreciation that security encompasses far more. It is not just collective security in an anti-war anti sense, but human security in, if you will, a developmental sense. And so one of the ways that I've framed it here is it's not just about state security. It's not just about civil and political rights. Much of the security concerns of the past were also limited to things like not being permitted to protest, um, not being able to choose your government, things that we think of as civil and political. Today, we understand security to have planetary uh, scope and to engage much more with what used to be called social and economic rights. So we care about climate, we care about the environment, we care about biodiversity, we care very much in the current situation with public health and the effects on health um, from all of those other degradations. We know that there is a link with environmental degradation, with um, uh, food security and the current pandemic. In uh, 
the summer of discussion about racial injustices, we care very much about inequalities. And so all of these things now are seen in the context of security in a way that simply wasn't the case in 2000, and in a way that is particularly important when we're talking about children. In addition to framing the term differently, we are begun to frame our responses differently. So it's not just military activity. It is prevention. It is sustainable development. And that's why I have in the upper corner the picture of the 17 sustainable development goals. Um, and there is a response that recognizes increasingly there needs to be space for participation at the grassroots. So not just the 15 entities um, at that round table at the Security Council in New York, but participants affected persons um, even at the local level, at the transnational level, at the civil society level. And so the space that is uh, supposed to open up is space for subjects, affected persons, affected groups who once were seen as objects, who once were only seen as victims and survivors. 1325 promises that for women, and it has moved quite a way to try to deliver it. And I know that some of your, your discussions in this series have talked about how difficult that is. But for me, the issue in this seminar is that we do not see that space opening up rapidly for children. And more particularly, 1325 doesn't contemplate that space for children at all. So that's changed. Security's changed. Who we think belongs in the security discussion has changed. Children, too, have changed, or at least the understandings in law and society of children have changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Children increasingly seen are, are seen as subjects, both in this context and in other contexts. Understandings of children are evolving, and that is um, foreshadowed, if you will, or there's a placeholder allowance of it, in the 1989 Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 5 recognizes that children um, should be involved in decisions that affect them to the extent they are able to do so. And they refer to in accordance with the child's evolving capabilities or capacities. The notion of evolving capacities is really important and in so much of the literature, in so much of the way we say, see juvenile courts and child welfare agencies, uh, journalists refer to children, capacities are lost sight of at the same time that vulnerabilities are uh, raised to the fore. This is what Mark Drumble in his important book, Reimagining Child Soldiers in International Law, refers to as the passive, passive victim status. 
children are always passive, always victims. And his very important point is they're also always active. And they are not always victims. They can be agents. They are, are participants in the world around them. Also, um, gaining a lot of recognition in recent years is the fact that the child is not a thing, a one thing that we can take one picture of and know what it looks like. There's a recognition that children, like all humans, are complex. They have multiple variations, and they have multiple intersecting identities, any of which or all of which may be important in different contexts. The understanding of children's sex, sexuality, and gender, the notion of gender fluidity, of non-binary status, um, the questions about what it means to be boy or girl, um, as, as, as uh, Catherine talked about at the beginning, the question of femininities and masculinities and when either of them might be considered toxic is all very much a subject of discussion in the last 20 years, very important with regard to children, because not least because they are in development. Um, children's national origin, race, ethnicity, language, uh, the ideas they hold, the values they hold, their religious background, their education, their modes of expression, and their connectedness are all things that are very different today than 20 years ago. And those kinds of changes change the way I would submit we need to and ought to think about children and, more importantly, ways that we need to and ought to include children in our thinking. And that lead, that is reflected, in fact, in the convention and the way the convention itself has been interpreted. This is a 2003 general comment of the Committee on the Rights of the Child, and it is the one that I point to to talk about that issue that I mentioned before, this notion that once once you say best interests, you're done. In fact, this document makes it clear that the best interest of the child is only one of four guiding principles. It is to be balanced or can be considered in full along with the right to non-discrimination based on all the identities that I just mentioned, the right to life, survival, and development, and very importantly, the right to express views the right of the child to have his or her views or their views considered. All of those things also fold into any assessment of the best interests of the child. And so mother doesn't know best if the child has the capability to form ideas about what the child wants, to express them, the child has the right to have those considered and considered in a way that may affect the outcome. That, I think, is a very different way of understanding the best interests of the child than the, the one-off slogan would have us think. In short, children want better. There is at least one child here, by my definition. You may recognize her in the middle, Greta Thunberg. Uh, she is 17. 
The others are a little bit older, um, probably more youths than children. But it is significant that you see these young people, as well as several others, at um, this past January's Davos meeting, meeting with uh, the movers and shakers of the world to try to discuss the world's economy on issues including not only climate change and the environment, uh, but also gun safety and things like that. Children have found a place, some children, and have made uh, changes in thought based on their demands, if you will. Um, other examples of this are the Scottish referendum a few years ago where we saw 16-year-olds voting. That, as I understand it, was a one-off for the United Kingdom. But there are movements in other jurisdictions to recognize that 16-year-olds understand their world enough and have the power to vote. So that's an area where we see difference. Um, we've talked about the Syria-Lebanon before. Uh, the enough picture are the children who survived the um, Parkland mass shooting in Florida a few years ago. And as you may remember, they became quite vocal. Some of them, I think, are quite involved in the current uh, US elections. And then if you can see it, I can't. The diagonal picture on the right is, is this story about children on TikTok um, who appear to have affected attendance at a rally during the election cycle. Um, there's some question of whether that really happened, but the larger point is that we see mediums like TikTok. Uh, the Parkland children used Twitter to huge effect. Here we have the children in Syria finding a camera and putting a picture in front of it. Children are finding ways to communicate and they're doing so in a society where these modes of communication get far more recognition. Um, and so all of those things suggest to me that we need to do more. And in one or two slides, what I'd like to do is propose a possible new step. I started with a slide that called it a possible solution, and I realized that was too ambitious because 20 years from now, someone else is going to say, ah, nothing's changed. But the suggestion that I would like to talk about is thinking not about women in peace and security, not about youths in peace and security in a way, both of them that exclude children, but about children and peace and security. The question is, what would that be and what might that entail? It would certainly entail thinking about security in that big way, human security, as well as state security, as well as collective security, as well as planetary. My research assistants and I started thinking about this this summer, and the three things that I've mentioned that might be concepts of it that are not traditionally Security Council security were the things that they singled out. So one of them got very interested in children's right to participate in protests. And I would suspect, given the children that I featured, that would be a primary concern. How can I express opposition to what's happening? What are the limitations? Education, of course, 
Um, that plays out in many ways today. It plays out in the fact that many of our children are not in school because of COVID. And honestly, nobody seems to care except for the parents and children themselves. It plays out in the uh, what sometimes people are calling the before times reality, that things like child marriage and, and other things were operating as limitation on education for some children. Another issue that needs to be resolved, certainly in armed conflict, we have the problem of education being a sector of attack in a way that makes things very difficult. And then the third one is what I've called whole health, for lack of a better term, and that ranges from uh, sexual health, reproductive health for children, the ability to make decisions about those things, um, not to have someone else decide what's in their best interests, as well as, um, again, COVID, access to vaccines, access to health care in that context. What would this this uh, idea do, it would center children, and it would set policy at the center. I think if we had thought about COVID and put children at the center and devised COVID policy around children, we would be in a very different place today. And so it, it, in some ways, it's an imagining. How would we think about war if we put children at the center? How would we think about distributing economic wealth if we put children in the center. It probably might put prevention over punishment. I know I would. It might put popular culture over politics. Those of us who are really obsessed with politics might not like that, but that might be a child-centered approach. And that's why I've ended it with their words and their terms. And that makes this thing very difficult to do because having children lead in a space like the UN is highly problematic. And so maybe the idea doesn't work from the beginning, but that's what I'd like to talk about. So thank you very much. Um, and thanks again to my research assistants for their help. I have no idea why this picture by my son when he was very little is uh, on its side. He was not abstract quite enough to draw a dog lying down in this way, but uh, let me end there with this reminder of children's power and creativity and open it for questions. Thank you. Ter terrific. Thank you, Diane. That was incredibly rich um, and incredibly comprehensive. And, and if I may say so, having um, attended a number of WPS related events this year. I mean, something that I found genuinely um, new and novel, um, making me think in different ways about the agenda. Um, so thank you. Um, we've had a few questions uh, pop in on the in the chat box. So if you're okay, I'll I'll go ahead and, and start with those, and um, I'll, invite others, I'll invite others to um, to contribute as well. Um, so we've a question from Cindy Hawkins Rada. Uh, uh, glad to hear you again. Such a great presentation. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about how to approach non-binary children victims in armed conflict through these different initiatives to ensure an intersectional approach. Thank you. And hello, Cindy. Cindy was one of my students last year. And um, although I can't see you, it's very good to hear from you. Um, it's a great question, and I don't think it can be answered in, in a one-size-fits-all way. 
we always start, I, I did not by any means uh, mean to uh, disparage the gender perspective or the gender sensitive approach um, in, in spirit. Uh, in the project that I cannot talk about that I worked on, we adopted a child-sensitive approach. Um, the child-sensitive approach very much takes intersectionality and various identities into account. And I think that's basically where you start. And how you apply it depends very much on your context. Um, in some cases, some identities not matter. If, if your concern is food security, simply want to make sure everyone gets a sufficient and equal distribution of food, some other identities fall away. Unless the reason that they have a non-binary identity is why they're being excluded from the food. You need to kind of figure those things out. Um, so that the first aspect of sensitivity is just being aware of where these pressure points, these if you will, evil opportunities for discrimination are present, or the opportunities or the, the realities that certain children may be more reticent or even hidden for certain reasons. Right? It's um, not that long ago, and I suspect still true in some cultures, children who have what is perceived to be a physical disability or a mental developmental disability simply are not present in the public sphere. They may live in a bedroom upstairs and no one knows they're there. And so sometimes sensitivity is simply doing a proper census to understand who your community is and make sure that you are reaching everyone involved. Um, and so that's kind of where I would start. Uh, what you do about it really depends on the child and the community and uh, the, the initiative or service that you're trying to provide? A great question. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a question then from Nicholas Pugh, who's one of our LLM students um, at the TJI. Um, he says that resolution 1325 can often appear quite static given the narrative shifts surrounding security over the last 20 years. Um, do you feel that international institutions, NGOs and the like are, are now better equipped to move with the times, or do they remain um, hamstrung by the rigidity of the norms that they're relying on? Yes and yes okay. is the answer. Um, you know, again, we have to look at the context. Something like the WPS agenda is really important for the very reason it sets an agenda. It says, okay, we now at the Security Council have agreed that women in peace and security, whatever that means, is something that we have to pay attention to. And how that gets implemented may happen in different ways. Certainly significant that WPS not only applies to the Security Council, but as you know, we have all of these national action programs, so that states now have to think about this. Even um, I have taken part in some NATO workshops. So NATO, which um, includes 
a, a very important subset of states, those that, if you will, are more likely to engage in military activity, they too have their own WPS agenda. And um, if you think about the societal diversity of the, the NATO partners, to say you need a gender inclusion or sex inclusion, you need men and women ranks of your military, and you need to have um, genuine paths to promotion and retention for women as well as men. And if there are barriers, like in the United States, it used to be that women couldn't serve in combat, and you couldn't get promoted to certain ranks if you had never served in combat. And so the combat bar operated as a promotion bar as well. Barriers exist, you have to find a way to get rid of them. Without something like WPS, none of those discussions happen. And so definitely there are going to be advances. That said, bureaucracies are bureaucracies. And when you set agendas, you create new bureaucracies. And they chase donor dollars like everybody else chases donor dollars, and that may shape the way that 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 the, the the issue goes forward. I think another another difficulty, which is by no means the fault of WPS, is that the women, some of the women who should be at the forefront of that, and all of the children should be at the forefront of some agenda like that hard to reach in the space where international organizations work, right? It's great that, that Greta and 19 other children went to Davos in January. Do they represent a constituency? Were they chosen? How can they um, go back, if you will, to the constituency and get feedback and, um, uh, you know, metastasize their movement? Those are huge questions. And there's always a danger that uh, looking at these marginalized, marginalized groups and trying to bring them in from the margins is also going to create a tokenism, right? And, and how you break that down is very difficult. In the project that I worked on, we had about a half a dozen consultations, young people, not children, because to talk to people under 18 about experiences in armed conflict had informed consent issues. Um, but to try to say, this is what we're trying to do, make any sense to you? Are we missing something that's really important? They were imperfect. Uh, efforts, the making of the effort itself is really important. And so I think like so many other things in the human rights transitional justice world, it's a work in progress, right? You can't achieve perfection, but you can continue to try to work toward it. Okay. Thank you, Diane. Um, so I have a question from uh, Anna Martin, who's a 
PhD researcher at the TJI, um, doing a, a wonderful thesis on intersectionality and international criminal law. Um, I know you've referred to some limitations about what you can say in terms of your ICC role. So instead, I hope that you can still speak as a scholar of international criminal law in terms of her response, uh, response to this question. Um, how do you see the potential of an intersectional approach to identity and discrimination to address crimes against children at the ICC? So I can't, I cannot answer the at the ICC piece of it, um, but I can speak more broadly. Um, I've been uh, in consultation on a Save the Children project that they're doing with Oxford's uh, LAC, I can't remember, Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict Office. Yes. And it is looking at ways that the issue of crimes against children uh, is or is not permeating the agendas of multiple international criminal law entities. And by that I mean not only what courts there are that remain, but all of these um, ever-proliferating investigating mechanisms. Okay. In some ways, they are extremely important right now because like Syria and Myanmar, where no court has complete jurisdiction, they're the ones who are in real time documenting, uh, putting together evidence of harm. If you look at the terms of reference of most of those mechanisms, virtually nothing about children. They act as if the initiatives by courts one you mentioned, and also Sierra Leone in particular, never happened. Um, they, most of them do not have experts on staff. And what does that mean? I think they're beginning to recognize this. So, so I hesitate in saying all, but I think it's still true. Most of them have not gone very deeply into this. Um, what does that mean? It means at this moment, where whatever physical evidence there's ever going to be is there, where, where memories are as sharp as they are ever going to be, crimes against children simply are, are not visible. The people who are investigating don't even know to look for them. The examples that I have given in international criminal law is Across tribunals, um, the crime against children, the three crimes against children dealing with child soldiering have garnered almost all the attention. Um, enlistment, recruitment, and use of children. In every one of those circumstances, child had to get to the armed group somehow. The crimes as they've been charged talk about the child inside the armed group. But if the allegations by groups like UNICEF are true, many of those children are being effectively trafficked into the militia. They have come into the custody of someone who controls them in a way that we might call exercising a right of ownership have been sold or bartered or put into that armed group. In circumstances where that allegation is true, can be proved, 
You also have the crime against humanity, enslavement, slash child, child trafficking. And yet, to my knowledge, that has never been charged. And I wonder the extent to which any investigator has ever investigated it, right? Do they, do they say, oh, you were in a militia, checkbox for child soldiering, or do they say, we need to talk about how you got there and who brought you there? Because that might be a separate crime. And so that's just one example of the way that not having investigating mechanisms fully apprised of, of the learning about crimes against children can affect for yet another generation uh, 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 an invisibility about these crimes in the sense that if there's ever a Syria tribunal, they'll be charged because they weren't investigated in the first place. Thank you. I mean, it's um, as you speak, it's so resonant of a lot of the interventions we were trying to make 20 years ago around um, gender specific crimes against women. Um, uh, so a further question very much on that theme um, is about uh, from, from Daniela Suarez Vargas and she's asked about your thoughts on children born of rape in international law framework, especially in relation to their recognition as victims of sexual violence and their possibility to access uh, means to reparation. Well, I think there is a, as there is there is awareness of that issue now. And in some ways, where, where it plays out currently is children born in armed groups, right? Because the you use the term rape, but of course, if someone is an armed group in certain circumstances, the, the coercive context alone is all that matters, right? Um, in some ways, it may not even, I mean, the fact that the child is born there, if the armed group is disfavored by the larger community, regardless of the circumstances of their conception and birth, that in itself is problematic. I think that there is a recognition that this is an issue these children have rights and that they need to be addressed. The problem is operationalizing that. It, it, it is, if you will, um, a subset of the larger problems of demobilization and rehabilitation. It would seem to me if you can identify their parents in the context of demobilization and rehabilitation and you're doing the kind of census we talked about, you will very quickly identify the child. So, if the awareness is there, should capture that person as another potential um, recipient of reparation. But of course, we know then that the next problem is there's such a sparseness of actual programs and financing and rehabilitation for people once that that identity comes to the fore. Okay. Thank you. A question from uh, Yoon Young Yang, um, who's a postgraduate student from South Korea um, studying in the UK. And he says he's researching child soldiers and rebel groups, and he would appreciate um, advice for students like him who want to pursue research regarding children's humanitarian issues in conflict zones, especially child soldiers. 
Uh, so that's a really broad question, is, and I should say yeah. I don't I don't do field work. I haven't sure. done field okay. work. Um, there are certain sensitivities, and, and if that's where the question is going, um, yeah. Yeah. some of those sensitivities will will be the same things you need to think about whenever you're using human research subjects. And so my guess is your university is going to have a pretty comprehensive protocol to begin with, and it's going to have you know subparagraphs for especially vulnerable people. Um, some of it is going to be resolved by the fact that access is very difficult. Even for judicial institutions in the international arena, um, access to people identified as having been child victims in conflict is limited whenever those children have gone into rehab programs, NGO or an international organization, because the rehabilitation organization's interest is in not traumatizing the child again. Um, and so the, the feeling often of the people working in those organizations is we will not let them anywhere near the justice system because um, reliving the experience may be problematic in an emotional way, in a practical way, um, becoming identified as someone who helped say get your commander thrown in jail, they put you at physical risk, right? And so I think what you find is that the places where those children have been uh, identified and brought together for rehabilitation, you as a researcher are very unlikely to get access to them. And so I think the best thing to do would be to think about looking at your human research protocols very carefully, um, and then as you're designing it, I would definitely reach out to many of the people um, in the social science literature who have done this kind of work. And I'm sure they'd be only happy, uh, be very happy to talk to you about how to think about uh, productive ways of going about that, productive both for your research and for the subjects that you identify. Thank you. Um, the question then from Fiona McGregor, who's one of our LLM students, um, who's done a lot of work in um, as a journalist in Myanmar and documenting human rights violations in Rakhine State. Um, she asks, um, do you think it's necessarily a bad thing that a resolution about women doesn't conflate women and children, an idea that can undermine women's autonomy? At the same time, the inclusion of girls is potentially useful in that it recognizes that adolescent girls while children under international law share many of the same issues as adult women in conflict. For example, they can be mothers themselves, share sexual and reproductive health needs, and are considered women in their own society. Um, so I think conflation is almost always a bad idea. Um, but then I'm an academic, and so I'm supposed to think that. Women and children is not one word. Women and girls is not one word. Um, and I guess my concern is throwing girls or children into the mix without thinking through why and how they're doing that. Um, if it is true, children are almost always accompanied by women, i.e. their mothers or caretakers, say when they've become refugees or something, then you might not need the word children at all. 
in an agenda uh, resolution about women and security. As to the question about girl children experience things so like women, adult women, that they belong there, that's certainly the logic. The problem, as I pointed out, is having implicitly acknowledged that, the drafters then say, oh, but you can't participate in decisions about what happens to you. And I would think if someone is 15 years old and has a child, they deserve a seat at some table. It's wrong, as the, as the drafters did, it is wrong to say, oh, but the adults can speak for you. That's what the exclusion from participation paragraphs, in effect, do. And if you look at um, literature around WPS, that's, in effect, what most of the programs have done. It becomes sort of an add-on or a tag-along, rather than saying, are their experiences so similar that we can just add them on? Or have we now created an obligation to talk to them about their experiences and see whether um, there aren't spaces where their experiences are so different that they need different treatment? We don't know the answer when we conflate or submerge them. I think also the, the issue of gender fluidity children in particular makes it more complicating assume that girl children have all the same interests as adult women. We don't necessarily know that. And then the last piece I would add is I would commit you to the work that Chris Dolan has done in Uganda, among many other people, about the harms done to boys and, and adult males in conflict. And the concern that he sometimes makes overt, but I think is, is very much right below the surface, is that conflation not only of women and girls, but conflation of women, girls, and gender and sexual-based crimes has caused an invisibility that has um, resulted in insufficient attention to sexual and gender-based crimes against boys and men. Right? So, so we need to think very clearly about what we're doing, make sure that we aren't operating in a way that excludes individuals who ought to be included in the larger effort. Thank you. It's a thoughtful response. Um, I'm going to take Chair's prerogative here and just, I, I do want to ask a little bit about the the children in our conflict agenda. So the, I mean, and you mentioned it in your talk, the Security Council, um, indeed prior to 1325, I mean, it commenced really its, its work in this area with the children in our conflict agenda. And um, I mean, anyone would argue that the infrastructure around the children in our conflict agenda at the Security Council is, is more robust than the Women, Peace and Security agenda. So um, the children in our conflict agenda has a working group, unlike WPS, um, the work of the um, special representative 
is broader in that they're documenting sex grave violations um, as distinct from, from only the focus on sexual violence um, in WPS. Um, so I suppose I do wonder, I mean, strategically, uh, would it be better for children and children's rights advocates to really try, try to improve the gender sensitivity of the children in armed conflict agenda, um, rather than looking at to WPS to be doing more on children? I guess my argument is that neither one is sufficient for the concerns that I have. Um, if the women in peace and security agenda said nothing about children, mm -hmm. that would be fine. I think having said something about children, that gives rise to an obligation to do something about children. And I guess my argument is that all that seems to have been done is to think of them as little women, if you will. Um, and all other aspects, they're not there. Um, and that seems to me to be problematic. Beyond that, I think the children and armed conflict agenda, by its words, is different than the women, peace, and security agenda. It has a much narrower notion of, of its context. It's not about peace and security. It's about armed conflict. And if you look at um, the, the, the reports that the UN Special Representative puts out that eventually, like four months later, get tweaked a bit and then adopted by the Secretary General, mm. she, and it's almost, I think there's been one male, but the most recent ones have all been women, mm. um, she pushes against the limitation of armed conflict. Normally speaking, she shouldn't say anything about Yemen. Um, in many other contexts, and and she manages to squeeze Yemen in, mm. but maybe not uh, pick pick some other place, maybe the Philippines. Yeah. There's clear structural violence that I would say is a threat to international peace and security. Um, that simply is not going to be addressed because it is a during and after armed conflict agenda. Youth peace and security agenda broadens it out by starting to talk about terrorism. Many people on this call will understand almost everything the Security Council does in the name of countering terrorism has a new set of problematic consequences about which Fanula Nguelen, among others, have written. Right? That is it countering violent extremism agenda that seems often to intentionally or not operate as a vehicle for discussion of all kinds of the rights that I think are important. And so what I'm trying to say is there is a something about WPS that is bigger than children in armed conflict conceptually in that um, it is not enough for children. It's not intended to be about children. The children in armed conflict agenda is excellent as far as it goes, but it has severe limitations. There's also within that agenda a real tension between the agenda and accountability. Leaders of armed groups say, if I pledge that I won't recruit children as soldiers, I'm admitting that I've been recruiting children as soldiers, and you can put bring me before a tribunal and prosecute me for that. And so um, it's, not a, it's not an answer to everything. 
what I'm saying is the imagination of women, peace, and security suggests to me that in a ima similar imagination for children be very productive. But because I have a commitment to children as being real participants, it's probably a pipe dream for thinking about bringing it into the UN family. It might have to begin on TikTok and stay there if it's truly to be effective. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you. I mean, we've arrived at the, the end of the questions and uh, there was such a rich discussion. You've given us so much to think about. Um, I'm really just deeply grateful and indebted to you. Um, I want to give you an opportunity maybe to make any concluding comments just before we, we wrap up. No, I think I think the response to your question is about how I would have ended my discussion. So I think okay. that that's great. Everybody, I've really appreciated it. And Catherine, thank you so much for this invitation. I'm delighted. Uh, I should say, we celebrated the 10th anniversary by an in-law girls roundtable at the American Society of International Law that resulted in a special issue of a journal. And I'm delighted to have an opportunity to celebrate the 20th anniversary. So thank you. Terrific. That's that's wonderful. And uh, if I might uh, conclude just by encouraging you, I, I hope that we will see this in writing. Um, Diane, I think that you've made a really important intervention here and uh, I hope that more people will be able to uh, access it as well. So um, with that, I just want to thank also our audience. Thank you for your time and your attention. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, do please stay in touch uh, with us through our social media and other other engagements and come back to further commitments. And, and Diane, I, I'm confident we'll be in touch in the future as well. So take care. Likewise. Best All right, wishes. take care. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Bye-bye.